from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig with details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, and welcome to This Day in History Class, a show that pays tribute to people of the past by telling their stories today. I'm Gabe Luzier, and in this episode, we're talking about the life, work, and tragic murder of Steve Biko, a man who made it his mission to give the world a more human face. The day was September 12, 1977. Anti-apartheid activist Steve Biko died on the floor of a prison hospital in Pretoria, South Africa. He had been arrested for subversion in late August and had endured several weeks of abusive interrogation at the hands of security police in Port Elizabeth. By September 11th, the brutal treatment had left Biko in a semi-comatose state, at which point he was transferred more than 700 miles away to the hospital ward of Pretoria Central Prison. A few hours later, on September 12th, he succumbed to his injuries and died of a massive brain hemorrhage at the age of 30. The political killing of Steve Biko sparked an international outcry and made him a powerful symbol of black resistance to the apartheid regime. His supporters kept that momentum going and eventually used it to help overturn the oppressive white minority government that had ruled over South Africa since the late 1940s. Stephen Bantu Biko 
was born on December 18, 1946, in King Williamstown, South Africa. His father worked as a police officer and later as a clerk in the town's Native Affairs office, and his mother worked as a cook at a local hospital. When Biko was just two years old, the National Party came to power in his country and quickly enacted a series of racist policies that sought to segregate and control black South African citizens. This hateful system was called apartheid, an Afrikaans word meaning separateness or the state of being apart. The new laws not only dictated where black citizens were allowed to live and work, but also who they could marry and how they could vote, if at all. Steve Biko grew up under apartheid and experienced its injustice firsthand when he was just 15 years old. He had been enrolled at Lovedale College in the Eastern Cape, but when he started speaking up for the rights of black South Africans, he was expelled for anti-establishment behavior. He had an easier time at his next school, St. Francis College in Natal, and after graduating, he began studying medicine at the University of Natal Medical School, in the university's black section, that is. As he worked toward a career in medicine, Biko also returned to the activism of his youth by becoming a member of the National Union of South African Students. This multiracial group shared his passion for the fight against apartheid, but over time, he realized its white liberal members weren't willing to go far enough. They wanted rights to be restored to black South Africans, but that's as much change as they could agree on. The National Union saw the end of apartheid as a way to restore the old status quo, where black citizens were welcome to participate in white South African society. But Steve Biko and many of his fellow black peers believed that wouldn't be enough to right the wrong of apartheid. They didn't want to return to society, they wanted to reform it, but this time with the culture of the black majority at its center. With that aim in mind, Biko resigned from the union in 1969 and founded his own all-black group, the South African Students' Organization, or the SASO. The group worked to support and empower black communities by providing them with legal aid, medical treatment, and job opportunities. Around that time, Biko began promoting black consciousness, the idea that black identity should be self-defined and not subject to the definitions of others. As Biko explained, quote, black consciousness seeks to infuse the black community with a newfound pride in themselves, their efforts, their value systems, their culture, their religion, and their outlook to life. What black consciousness seeks to do is to produce real black people who do not regard themselves as appendages to white society. In the early 1970s, Biko helped spread the philosophy of black consciousness by speaking on college campuses and in black communities throughout the country. The movement grew so large that in 1972, Biko helped establish an umbrella organization called the Black People's Convention to help coordinate all the various black consciousness groups that had sprung up in response to his message. Unfortunately, Biko's writing and speeches also drew the attention of the apartheid government. In 1973, it retaliated by banning Steve Biko and many of his colleagues. This apartheid practice, banning, was essentially a kind of exile. It forced the activist to return to his registered hometown and to stay there until he was no longer deemed a threat to the government. 
he was only allowed to travel short distances and was forbidden to give public speeches or to circulate his writing. But even with these restrictions in place, Biko still found ways to be of service to the movement he helped start. He started organizing small community groups to spread black consciousness at a local level. He also continued working for the Black People's Convention, although the distance compelled him to be less hands-on than he would have liked. Biko was closely monitored and frequently harassed during the course of his ban. In fact, he was arrested and interrogated four different times between 1975 and 1977 on suspicion of terrorism. By that time, the black consciousness movement was struggling under the weight of apartheid bans and police crackdowns. To help keep the movement alive, Biko made the dangerous choice to defy his ban by leaving King Williamstown to meet with other activists in Cape Town. He made it there safely, thanks to a convincing disguise and a bit of good luck. But on the way back home, he was stopped at a police roadblock, and the officers knew exactly who he was. The Eastern Cape Security Police arrested Biko on the spot. After briefly being held in a jail cell in Port Elizabeth, he was taken to the security police headquarters. There, he was stripped naked and placed in shackles. Then, for nearly a month straight, he was interrogated and beaten over and over again. These assaults grew steadily more brutal until September 7th, when, during the course of a 22-hour-long interrogation, Biko was beaten over the head to the point of brain damage. According to a government report published two decades later, quote, Biko sustained a head injury during interrogation, after which he acted strangely and was uncooperative. The doctors who examined him, naked, lying on a mat and manacled to a metal grill, initially disregarded overt signs of neurological injury. Biko's abusers continued to ignore his pain for as long as they could. It wasn't until September 11th, when he slipped into a semi-conscious state, that one of the doctors finally recommended taking him to a hospital. But even then, he wasn't driven to the local civilian hospital. Instead, they threw him in the back of an SUV and drove him to the closest prison with a hospital ward. It turned out to be in the city of Pretoria, roughly 740 miles away. The drive there took 12 hours. Steve Biko never got the treatment he needed. Instead, he died shortly after arriving. He was found alone on the floor of his cell, still naked, still shackled. When the news of his death first broke, the police denied any wrongdoing. Biko hadn't been mistreated, they said. In fact, his death was his own fault, the sad result of a hunger strike protest that went on a little too long. An autopsy later proved they were lying. Their prisoner had died from a brain hemorrhage caused by severe blows to the head, sustained while in their custody. It was no matter, though. The government stood by its men, and every officer and doctor involved was eventually exonerated. But the court of public opinion was far less lenient. Protests broke out all over the world, and the UN even imposed an arms embargo on South Africa. Biko's death became a global concern and somewhere between 15 and 30,000 people, including several world leaders, attended his funeral. But the roots of apartheid ran deep, and even with the whole world watching, the pressure still wasn't enough to topple the racist regime or even to get it to admit wrongdoing. 
The closest it came was in 1979, when the South African government gave the Biko family $78,000 as compensation for his death. Biko's widow referred to the payment as, quote, blood money, and viewed it as an admission of the government's guilt. Officials disagreed, but they considered the matter settled all the same. But they were wrong about that. Other activists carried on what Steve Biko started, and in the early 1990s, they finally put an end to the apartheid era. Power was peacefully transferred to South Africa's black majority, and in 1995, a body called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was formed. Its task was to investigate the decades of atrocities committed under apartheid, and to hold accountable those who had abused their power. In 1997, five former police officers appeared before the commission and confessed to having killed Steve Biko 20 years earlier. They applied for amnesty, but were denied it, as their crime wasn't politically motivated. They hadn't beaten Steve Biko to death for his beliefs. They did it because they could. But although they weren't granted amnesty, the officers were never prosecuted for their crime either, due to a supposed lack of evidence. That injustice is one of the many wounds dealt by the apartheid era that still stings today. But the legacy of Steve Biko has lived on as well, not just in the free people of South Africa, but in those across the globe who continue to fight for dignity and self-determination. They believe, as Steve Biko once wrote, that it is better to die for an idea that will live than to live for an idea that will die. I'm Gabe Lussier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you have a second and you're so inclined, consider following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to send them my way at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks as always to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, 
LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.